Welcome, welcome. Let's go to John chapter 7. We're going to do John chapter 7 and 8. It takes me 15 minutes to read without comment. So we're going to do that. We thought last week, I said it was 10 minutes. I thought that was long. This is 15 minutes, so. All right. um, I am going to read it um, with a few just sparse comments for clarity. Then I'll make some comments that might be interesting or might not. And then we will... uh, Go for it. So live eternally is our theme as we look through John. John likes the word zoe. It's a Greek word for life, but it differs from just a biological existence. It's the very life that God begets. It comes from God and he gives it to his creatures. That's how we become the sons and daughters of God. So I'm going to read as normal the just brief explanation in the bulletin so we can be on the same page. So John writes his gospel so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now this life is Zoe, Z-O-E, in Greek. It differs from bios life. Zoe life is God's life. It is the kind of life that lives forever. It never decays. Though originally assumed to be something attainable only in heaven, John, our gospel writer, John, dares us to find that life in Jesus today. This is the life God wants us to live right now. A piece of himself within us. A bit of heaven on earth before Jesus returns to earth. Eternal life is not merely life after death, but also life before death. So whenever we see life in John's gospel, more often than not, and I will usually read it for you, it is Zoe. I usually just read Zoe for you. And it just refers to, yes, the length and breadth of life, but also the depth and quality of life. It's, it's not only just go, living forever and ever, but it's living with this deep, rich existence that God intended his humans to have. So that is live eternally. Now, we're going to see Jesus having some confrontation with the religious leaders. Nothing new. He's going to say a lot of things about himself. I do want to say um, that we're in a section in John where he's concerned with showing us that Jesus is the answer to the feasts, hopes, and promises that Israel was given. So they had their feasts throughout the year. And the, the feast, they were celebrating something God did for them in the past. So yay, we're recalling, we're praising you did that. But also as they celebrate them, they're looking forward to what God promises to do again in the future. So for example, the feast of Passover was when they looked back at their deliverance from Egypt, when God came and took them out of the oppressive power of a foreign ruler, Pharaoh in Egypt, and then led them through the wilderness and took them to the promised land where God became their king, not the pagan Pharaoh. Now they celebrated that, 
But as they did, they didn't say, oh, it's nice that God did do that. No, they, they celebrated the feast and looked forward to the time that God would deliver them again. Because Rome was now their new Egypt, and Caesar was the new Pharaoh, and they wanted deliverance, and they were looking for Moses, some figure like Moses to come deliver them. And ironically, Jesus at Passover is eating a meal with his disciples and basically saying, here it is. And so John is right now in this part of John interested in showing us that Jesus is that answer to the Jewish hopes. He's the fulfillment, the climax, the conclusion of their festivals. So in chapter 5, we saw that Jesus is the Sabbath. The very Sabbath that they kept and celebrated, Jesus says, I am the true Sabbath. The Sabbath of the religious leaders is almost exhausting how many things they tell you not to do. But my Sabbath is about true rest. And to demonstrate it, he makes a man who's paralyzed get up and walk. That's the kind of Sabbath I'm bringing to the world. In chapter 6, um, in chapter 6, we saw it's the Feast of Passover, and um, as Moses was able to, in the Exodus, give bread to the Israelites, Jesus brings bread to the 5,000 and says, I am the true bread that you need. And now in chapter 7, we see in verse 2 that Jesus, uh, it's the time of, uh, in verse 2, now the Jews' Feast of Booths was at hand, or Tabernacles, I believe the New King James calls it. The Feast of Tabernacles or booths, was simply where they remember that while they were in the wilderness living in tents, God provided for them, and he brought them to the destination of the promised land. And so when they celebrate it, they're remembering that, but they're also recalling uh, that God is right now sustaining us while we wait for him to bring the Messiah and the new creation. He's sustaining us. So the Jews, um, the Feast of Tabernacles was one of their favorite feasts of all. It flooded Jerusalem. Scholars, some said it, the, that Jerusalem would double in size. So you have a pretty busy city, and you can imagine a city doubling in size. Go to LA, imagine it doubled, right? It just, oh my goodness, that's chaotic. Uh, some scholars even propose that as many as 2 million people are packed into the city, whereas usually only about 500,000 are in the city. So some say even more than doubling, it's packed, it's busy, it's festive. All the activities in the temple, their celebrations, and what they're doing is they're going and they're not living inside, plugged into the TV and on their internet, like, the, like you know, your common life. They're going outdoors and they're making these little mini tents or booths, wherever they can make them. And so they're camping for a week while they recall the great provision of God. So Israel, around the tabernacle. In Jerusalem, they're around the temple, camping out and saying, God, lead us. Ironically, Jesus comes and says, hey, I'm that leader, and I'm taking you to the new creation. You had the promised land and lost it. Well, this is the new creation, the new promised land. I'm taking you there where Zoe life reigns forever. So we're going to see Jesus do two things in relation to this feast. One, he's going to say that you can have abundant water in me. If you're thirsty, come to me and drink. God gave Israel water in the wilderness. Remember how Moses had to strike the rock and water came from them. Jesus is that rock who goes with us and sustains our thirst while we are going towards new creation. 
Uh, We're also going to see Jesus say, I am the light of the world. And the Jews in the wilderness had the light in the pillar of fire that hovered over the tabernacle. And that was God's provision for them in the nighttime. And it was a cloud in the daytime. It guided them. Jesus says, in this dark world, I am that pillar of fire. I am the light of the world. So Jesus is giving them the answers in himself. Even more interesting is that on the eighth day of this feast, so the whole week of celebrations over, on the eighth day, everyone packs into the temple and there the, uh, the priest was to pour out water upon the altar. And it was basically to say, God bless us with rain for the rest of the year. And of course, that was looking forward when the prophets promised the rains would never cease when God fixes the world. So they're looking, of course, to a new created world as well when they're doing that. And that's when Jesus stands up. You'll hear it when we read it. He stands up and says, anyone who thirsts, come to me. So this is very, very symbolic, everything Jesus is doing here. Okay, that's by way of introduction. I do have one more thing. It's a legal matter, if you will. <laughs> so this is the fine print we got to go through. Then I'm going to read. Um, it's right here in 7 verse 53 through 8 verse 11. Now, I don't remember. I forgot to check. I, I, I don't remember if the New King James makes any note of this. But um, I know a lot of you read the ESV. You just want to be like me. That's cool. Uh, I'm just, just kidding. I'm just kidding. No, you just want to understand what I'm saying is all. Um, you'll notice that, and in many other translations, they put brackets from 753 down through 811. You'll notice those brackets. Do you see them? Or there might be some sort of footnote in your Bible. What's going on here is that that very well-known passage, the woman who is caught in adultery, is actually very strangely absent from many, many, many of the ancient manuscripts of John's gospel. It shows up in some of them. It's absent in most of them. And now you're like, okay, well, what's going? I'm sorry, not most of them, but the earliest ones. The earliest ones it's absent from. So you're going, what is up with that? Uh, In the ESV, there's a nice little footnote that tells you exactly what's going on. I'll just read it to you. The footnote in my Bible says, some manuscripts do not include 753 to 811. Others add the passage here or after 736 and after or after 2125 or after Luke 21 verse 38. Oh, okay. So now it's in different books, Um, which variations in the text with variations in the text. So what I'm basically just going to try to make this is, easy as possible, is that in the copying process, it is very likely that John never wrote this story. This is not original in John's gospel. He, insert, not he, I'm sorry, his scribes, the people writing down the gospels, copying them, inserted this story because they thought this story was too good to pass up. And we know it has to be what happened because in some places it's here, but in other places it's somewhere else suggesting that this is a editor, an editorial move. And the fact that it ends up in Luke in some manuscripts, in Luke, for goodness sake, it says that the people copying the Gospels really wanted this story in there. And because there was no legitimate place for it, it just ended up wherever they could fit it. 
Now, you might be slightly troubled as I say this. I'm just the messenger, okay? This doesn't in any way derail our view of inspiration, that the Bible is God's word. We, part of what inspiration means is the process of copying was under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Now, we kind of sometimes assume that the Gospels were just play-by-plays, like John is there watching Jesus, and then Jesus heals somebody, he makes a note. Chapter 5, he heals someone. You know, and then, and then they're following him around. Ooh, he fed 5,000. Chapter 6, he feeds 5,000. That's not what happened. John's just following Jesus. He's just amazed at what he's seeing. 60 years later, he's like, man, I really got to write this down. And so he's, he's recalling the things he knew of Jesus, and he's putting the gospel together. That's why not all of the things in the gospel of John are in chronological order. John is giving us a thematic approach to Jesus. Now, before he wrote, and before the other gospel writers wrote, there were stories that were told about Jesus. Okay, so Jesus does his thing in AD 30. He dies, he goes to heaven, the disciples start the church as the Holy Spirit falls upon them. And then Mark doesn't write his gospel until the earliest date given is somewhere in the 60s. That's 30 years later. And then Matthew in the 70s, and Luke in the 70s, and John in the 90s. What happened in all those years? Surely the church didn't talk about Jesus. Of course they did. They told stories about Jesus. And who would have been the source of stories? Well, James, John, Mark, uh, Peter, uh, Matthew, the 12, right? Minus Judas. They would be the storytellers to the community. They would gather and they would tell them things they remember about Jesus. Now, there was this one time when he healed this blind guy. So what, what, what probably happened is that this story of the woman caught in adultery was one of those stories that they were telling the community about Jesus. Who it came from, we don't remember. But it, it seems to go back to Jesus himself because it's very, very, it reads like something Jesus would do. It sounds like a typical scene in the Gospels. So, the story was told somewhere. The copyist said, you know what? This great story we've been telling each other isn't, isn't where do we, we got, it's too good to let it go by the wayside. We got to put it somewhere. So they put it in there. And that's why it's all over the place. So, let's condense and summarize with a takeaway. Is this passage, the woman caught in adultery, John's writing, probably not. Did it happen? Probably. Are we okay with that? Absolutely. Okay, let's go. John chapter 7. I told you it was a little bit of a legal matter, so I hope that wasn't too tedious. Verse 1. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea. That's the county, if you will, around Jerusalem, because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now, the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. No one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For even his brothers did not believe in him. Jesus said to them, 
My time has not yet come, but your time is always here, always spotlight for you. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. He exposes it. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast yet, for my time is not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then Jesus also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? Where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he is a good man. Others said, no, no, no. He's leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly about him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? He didn't go to school. So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? What? The crowd answered, You have a demon who is seeking to kill you. By the way, that's quite an abrupt subject change in the middle of your speech. 21. Jesus answered them, I did one work. He's referring to the raising of the, the invalid in chapter 5 that he healed. I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision. Not that it's from Moses, but from the fathers. But anyway, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath, a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken. Are you angry with me because on the Sabbath, I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. So on the Sabbath, you will mutilate a person's body in a sense, circumcision, and call that kosher. But if I heal a man's body, that's not. Hmm. 25. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly. And they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ, the Messiah? But we know where he came from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. That apparently was an assumption that they believed at the time. Verse 28. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me and you know where I come from, (laughs) but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true and him you do not know. I know him for I come from him and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, 
but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Then Jesus said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me, and you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? Utter confusion. Verse 37. And on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now when the people heard these words, some of them said, This really is the prophet. Others said, This is the Messiah, the Christ. But some said, Is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. So the officers then, um, remember they earlier sent people to arrest Jesus, so that's going to set up this comical scene. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees, who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man the Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities of the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Well, Nicodemus, who had gone up to him before, that's chapter 3, who, who was one of the Pharisees, said to them, Wait, 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 wait. Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? Well, they replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Now, you have to remember, Galilee is a podunk region. The poorest of the poor were up there. Now, we're going to move up to 8 verse 12 to read the way this would originally have flowed. And we're going to come back in the second message after worship and just uh, look uh, at the woman caught in adultery. So we'll do that on its own. So in 8 verse 12, and again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. That's Zoe life. So the Pharisee said to him, 
You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. And remember, the Jews needed a testimony by two or more witnesses, right? So like, you're bearing witness about yourself, so it's not true. But Jesus answered in verse 14, Even if I do bear witness about myself, I'll humor you for a minute, my testimony is true. For I know where I come from and where I am going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I am the Father who sent me. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, one, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me, two. So there. 19. They said to him, therefore, who is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught them in the temple. But no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. You see just the ebb and flow. Like they're going to arrest him. Oh, they can't. They're going to arrest him. Oh, they can't. Verse 21. So he said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Whoa, what? Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, he will kill himself since he says, where I am going, you cannot come. He said to them, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins for unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Uh, footnote where the ESV says, unless you believe that I am he, he is added. It's not in the Greek. So he's literally, it's the, uh, the, the saying, I am that I am. So unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. I'm going to keep reading it that way because it's going to happen one more time. 25. So they said to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, just what I've been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true. And I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the father. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the son of man, crucifixion, then you will know that I am and that I do nothing on my own authority but speak just as the father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. And as he was saying these things, many believed in him. Well, there's a change. So Jesus turns to those who believe in him. He said to the Jews who had believed in him, verse 31, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And rather than saying, yay, that's good news, they answered him, we're offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Uh, th that's roughly what people say today. Uh, I was born a Catholic. What do you mean I need to become born again? Right? Uh, that's, that's a pretty close equivalent to our culture. Jesus answered them, 34, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin, Jew or Gentile, 
is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham. I know that. Yet you seek to kill me because my words find no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. No, you are doing the works your father did. Now, don't miss this. They said to him, well, we were not born of sexual immorality. Ooh, that's an allusion to the rumored virgin birth. Oh, your mom, born of a virgin, right? Right. Your mom was a whore. That's what they're telling him. We at least know who our father is. We were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? I know. It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Obviously, you're of the father, the lying father, the devil. That's his conclusion. 47, whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. That came a long way from saying we're born of Abraham. (laughs) All right, the Jews answered him. Are we not Are we not right in saying you are a Samaritan and have a demon? It's a double blow. First, you are born of a whore. Second, you are a Samaritan. We've talked previously about why that would be a, a mean thing to say. And then third, you have a demon. You're demon possessed. Jesus answered. I wonder if he's raising his voice or just out of absolute calm. Just the power, who knows, the power within. I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. It's almost like you've gone too far. I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he is the judge. But truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. And the Jew said to him, Now we know you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. And yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died? And the prophets died. (laughs) Who do you make yourself out to be? 
And Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say, quote, he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him. And I keep his word. Smile, ding, little shine in the teeth. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. And he saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You're not even 50 years old and you have seen Abraham? And Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. So if us English readers missed the significance of before Abraham was, I am, they didn't. Let's pick up stones to, to, to kill this blasphemer. Four times he says, I am. Very clear who he thinks he is. Chapter, 12, uh, chapter 8, verse 12. I am the light of the world. We saw it twice after that in verse 24. Unless you believe that I am, you will die. And then in verse 28, down towards the end of it, middle of it, uh, then you will know that I am. And then, of course, here at the end, before Abraham was, I am. Now, so much to say, so little time, so much text. Let's do this. I want to make a couple... Int- I just found chapter 7, the beginning, interesting. Jesus' brothers say, hey, you're this great guy. Like, you're doing these amazing miracles. You teach amazingly. People listen to you. They follow you. You've got a big thing going, Jesus. Why don't you go to Jerusalem and just, like, let everyone know about you? Jerusalem's a place to be if you're a prophet. That's where all the religious activity is. That's where the big names are. And, you know, and they, can, they can put you, they can give you a little platform and you could change the world right there. Jesus apparently has a different goal. Now, historically, yes, the Jews are seeking to kill him, so it's wise of him to kind of play undercover. But maybe also what John is communicating 60 years later and wanting the church to hear is, yes, that was a historic reason, but also Jesus is just not that kind of hotshot. You know, and he says over and over throughout, as you heard, I'm not glorifying myself. I'm simply saying the words the one who sent me gave me to tell you. This isn't me. This isn't my own deal. I'm just the messenger of God. So, and I don't mean just like he's not God, but you know what I'm saying. I'm not seeking my own glory here. Uh, So, John might be also just showing the church this is the way to win the world. We don't have to make primetime Fox News to change the world. We don't have to have every pastor of every big church have a New York Times best-selling book to change the world. And heaven forbid, please, we don't have to buy out the books ourselves to make a fake New York Times bestseller. That was a huge scandal that made us look bad. If you don't know what I'm talking about, good for you. Just stay out of it. <laughs> um, <laughs> we don't have to step into spotlight. And Jesus tells them, like, look, my hour's not coming. Your hour's always here. And that's the way of the world. It's always my time to shine. Uh, two, I'm going to quote two commentaries. This one's from Frederick Bruner. If you want to look him up, I've highly benefited from his commentary. It's amazing work on John. Frederick Bruner, he says, showing off even for evangelical ends is not 
believing. No, it is the rankest unbelief. For what showtime does to faith is to demonstrate that our real belief and even our God is the world's praise. Matthew Henry, the ancient commentator, he says, if the providence of God casts persons of merit into places of obscurity and little note, it must not be thought strange. It was the lot or even the method of the master himself. So America's big on numbers and prestige and we um, like the CEO church, you know, the church where the pastor is the CEO. And look, uh, there's not, it's not like nothing's happening there. God's using those churches. But if every church sought to be that, we would have a very, very bad Christianity. And we need to avoid thinking that success is in numbers or success is in how well known your church name is or how many podcast hits your church has. You know, you can go down the line of the ways Americans measure things, but that is not the true way to glorify God. So a very interesting insight there into Jesus's heart. Just, you know what? I'm even going to go up to the feast in stealth mode. No one is even going to know I'm here until I start teaching in the temple. And then they're really confused about who I am. They don't even know where I'm from or anything. Um, his credentials aren't good. He's not, he didn't go to the right school, didn't follow the right rabbi, doesn't have the right degree. You know, remember they said that in 7 verse uh, 14, that little paragraph, they, they talk about how does this man have so much learning? Jesus says, hey, look, all I do is communicate what God says. That's all the learning I need. Um, then they make fun of him being from Galilee. So he's born in the wrong place. He's apparently born of the wrong parents because he's viewed as an illegitimate son from a whore. So um, all of the things are stacked against Jesus, yet God glorifies him. And then in 8 verse 12, I am the light of the world. This verse marks the second time he does this. I didn't give this a lot of attention to it last week, but in chapter 6, verse 35, we see the first time of seven that John is going to have Jesus say, I am, and then give us a metaphor, a, a picture for what he is for us. So first, the I am links us to God. He is the I am who I am, the God's name that he gave to Moses, the burning bush. I am, and now he's going to give us something that uh, is earthly, something that humans can relate to and say, ah, this is what God is for us. So the first one was in John 6, verse 35. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life or the bread of Zoe. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. This is the second one now in 8 verse 12. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of Zoe. I like so much this picture. The light shining in the darkness. We have here, as John has been doing, showing that Jesus is leading us to the new creation, which is full of Zoe life. In the beginning, mimicking creation, in the beginning God created, in the beginning was the word. Jesus is the God who created everything. And he's recreating everything. He's bringing a new creation. So seven times, I am this of the new creation because of seven days of creation. And here, 
as the creation started with darkness and day one was God said, let there be light. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever believes, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. He's going back to the beginning of creation, the darkness over everything. And here I am, I am that light that's being spoken to give light. And if you follow me, he says, so if you follow me from the moment that you see me as light, you will go with me through the seven days of new creation and end up at the new creation itself. That's what he's inviting them to. I am the beginning. I am at that initial launch of creation and the new creation is happening right now in me. Follow me and you will make it to the end, the new creation, which he calls, he said right there, you'll have the light of Zoe. So it's such a beautiful phrase for Jesus to say, uh, to give us that picture of what he's doing and why we should follow him. And so with that, we're going to go to a couple worship songs and uh, I will come back and we'll do the woman caught in adultery. And um, it's not going to be 40 minutes. Don't worry. That's going to be much shorter than that. Um, Just give us a couple of thoughts and applications on that passage. So as the worship team's coming up, let's, let's let the words of scripture that we heard being read and some of the applications just sink into our hearts and let's, Allow God to have space in our lives right now.